Father, we ask you to teach us tonight. Keep us humble. Keep our hearts open to hear what you have to say. Don't let our, our pride or our ego get in the way, Father, when we hear that perhaps there's something about our life that's not exactly the way you would prefer it. That should be no surprise, but sometimes, Father, we just resist hearing these things. So I ask, Father, you just open our hearts in a way that only you can do, humbling us and uh, giving us an attitude that wants to do what we hear, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So for the past two weeks, what we've been doing in this class is marching steadily outwardly in the bullseye that Paul uses to organize his conversation about sanctification. We've gone through the first two of those rings, starting at the bullseye. And then moving out to the second ring, the first one, the center of it is our righteousness in our personal relationship with God. And the next ring out is our righteousness in our church relationships. And there was a whole lot of material in those sections. So I've tried to simplify your understanding or memory of these things by looking at that chart I handed out to you tonight. And I'm just going to look at it briefly with you. Notice I've given a theme to each of these as best I could. The theme of that bullseye is to seek Christ's holiness in our person. The theme for working in the church is to love others in humility with eyes for eternity. That's my wording. And then I summarize some of the details below. And the summary shows really well, I think, the relationship between the rings. That is, the first ring is emphasizing your thinking and acting like Christ. That is essentially a process of disciplining the the sin nature of your flesh so that the spirit nature, the new spirit God has given you, can have ownership over you. That battle between your spirit and your flesh, the one Paul describes in chapter 6 and 7 of this book, that battle will largely determine your success in all the other rings. If you are someone who is succeeding, by and large, at disciplining the flesh, at hearing from the spirit and following him, you're going to do really well as you move outwardly in these rings. And conversely, if that's not who you are, you really have nowhere to go. You have nothing to offer anyone, and you're going to stumble at every turn. That's not someone who's in a position to bless many other people. They're really in no position to do anything except work on themselves. And so they end up back where they started, right in that bullseye. So you have to learn how to say no to yourself so that you can then hear from the Lord and obey Him if you're ever going to be practiced at maintaining good relationships with anyone else in a godly way. So today we're going to move into the third ring as we continue to see this development, this movement outwardly from yourself to your brothers and sisters, now to those in the world who do not have your faith, to unbelievers. And Paul starts this section in chapter 12, verse 14, and it runs to the end of the chapter. I'm going to read the whole section. Verse 14, Paul says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So, successful relationships with unbelieving people in the world begins by understanding they are not your enemies, they are your mission. If if you look at the commands Paul just gave, every one of these commands in this list is directed at enhancing that mission 
of winning them for Christ, of winning an unbeliever for Christ. If you follow these commands, the relationships you will have with unbelievers will be far more likely to win souls for Christ than they would have otherwise. That's the thing you want to understand about this ring. You are seeking to conduct yourself in ways that keep avenues open for reaching people for Christ. It's a strategic mindset. It understands that your relationship with unbelievers have eternal consequences. Your goal is not harmony or friendship with the world. Your goal is making an opportunity for the gospel. That's how you should perceive the opportunity to have a relationship with any unbeliever you come across in any walk of life. And Paul begins the instructions that command us in this area by simply reminding us that unbelievers will naturally oppose us and they will naturally oppose our mission. The natural state of an unbeliever's heart is to oppose God and to oppose God's word and therefore to oppose God's people. Jesus told his disciples in John fifteen twenty, Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, then they will keep yours also. So the enemy has deceived the world very effectively and has set their hearts against the truth and against those who bring them the truth. And it's such an ironic state of affairs when you think about it because the desire that you and I have is to rescue them, to offer them eternal life through the message of the gospel. And we do it at great personal risk in self-sacrificial ways, right? And yet they oppose us as if we were their enemies seeking to harm them. It's like we have an antidote to cure their cancer, but that sickness leaves them unable to swallow the medicine. The enemy has lied to them so effectively that they are hardened against the truth that would otherwise set them free. Nevertheless, the Lord has the power to reach those hearts just as he did yours and mine, and he asks us to make ourselves available for the potential to that happening through us. And Paul tells us you have to think strategically about the possibility and position yourself for it. You need to anticipate opposition. You need to use that coming opposition as an opportunity to do something they do not expect you to do. When they persecute you, bless them. Love them despite their hatred. Bless them in that way and watch the effect it has on their receptiveness to the gospel. Because obviously that is not the way the world would have dealt with any kind of opposition that came against it. The world repays evil for evil. They misquote the Bible's teaching on give an eye for an eye, right? They take this as license. They expect you to do the very same thing. And so when you and I show them kindness in place of that kind of retribution, when they persecute us, we are challenging their assumptions about who we are and what we believe. And that may be useful to God to open up an avenue to reach their heart. So you're fulfilling the very purpose Christ had in calling you into faith and leaving you here for a while rather than taking you home right away when you go before the world in this counterintuitive fashion, in a self-sacrificial fashion. Jesus said this in Matthew 5.43. He said, You have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, being Jesus' hands and feet, as we say, or being his ambassador, begins with having this charitable attitude toward the unbeliever. Remembering that, that you and I are not inherently better than they are. We, we didn't find Christ because we're smarter, 
or nicer or more deserving. God gave us grace while we were yet still his enemy, and he may be prepared to do the same for them. Of course, now, if you forget that and you return curses for curses, then as Jesus says, well, what reward will there be in that for you? Reminding us that there is a reward on the line here for the way we serve Christ. And we stand to forfeit that reward if we forfeit the opportunity to treat someone in the way Christ would have, self-sacrificially. And we're given the world no reason to take note of our message in the process, since our behavior is just going right along with their expectations. In that sense, we're standing opposed to the truth of the gospel rather than being a witness for it. So practically speaking, what are we talking about? Well, blessing those who persecute you means doing the kinds of things that you may never have imagined doing. Just using an example that came to my mind. Let's say an unbeliever, maybe a neighbor in your, in your neighborhood, comes to your front door one day complaining about your front yard Christmas display. He finds it offensive. What do you think he expects you to do in response? Yeah, you don't respond the way he expects, though, if you're following Paul's command. And probably not even the way you'd prefer. Instead of engaging in an argument on your doorstep or defending your rights, you agree to remove it. But first, you invite them in for some eggnog. Maybe later, you bring them a gift and a card. And eventually, you might even invite them to church. In other words, you show no regard for that Christmas nativity scene, which had zero potential, more than likely, to bring anyone to Christ. And instead, you put your concern into the soul that's standing right in front of you. Imagine you put aside the conflict altogether so that you could attend to the eternal needs of that individual. And you do so, by the way, hoping that the Lord has orchestrated this very moment. He has created this very encounter specifically for you to witness to the love of God. That the whole point of that nativity scene may have been to create this conflict so that you would have this opportunity. Now, I think there are more than a few believers who've come into the kingdom because someone took that kind of a thoughtful approach to their opposition to the gospel. So besides showing kindness to unbelievers who would intrude into your life this way, Paul says you have to go a step further than simply being nice to them when they're mean to you. He says you have to take an honest interest in their lives. That's the next thing he says in the text. Paul says in verse 15, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now before you look at this command, remember the context. What's the context of this passage? We're talking about unbelievers here. Which is not to say that you don't also rejoice and weep with those in the body of Christ. Of course you do. And in fact, later at the end of verse 16 or down in verse 16, Paul's going to effectively remind us of doing the same. But at this stage of the passage in verse 15, we're not talking about believers. Paul's talking about our true challenge. And our true challenge in the body of Christ is rejoicing and weeping with unbelievers when they're experiencing the ups and downs of their lives. Unbelievers rejoice, in case you haven't noticed. They rejoice at weddings, they rejoice at a new birth, they rejoice when they get promotions or a new car or a new boyfriend or whatever drives their life. If we're thinking strategically about those relationships with unbelievers, we will make a point to join with them in those moments. We will identify in their circumstances, we will become part of their celebration or of their lamenting. Why do you think this needs to be a command? Because if you are honest about the nature of the culture in the church, if not yourself personally, at least you've seen this, I know, There are those in the church who are bothered by unbelievers' choices and lifestyles. And because those things often run contrary to our own values, we will see those differences as cause to restrain our empathy. So that as a result of their choices, we may respond to their ups and downs in life in this kind of tempered 
insincere way. For example, your next door neighbor invites you to come over and celebrate the birth of their child, but you know the parents aren't married. They're just living together. And so you feel conflicted over congratulating them on having a child born out of wedlock. Or you have a a workmate who is weeping at the desk one day over the death of a homosexual friend who died of AIDS. You struggle to show sympathy knowing that the person's immoral lifestyle probably contributed to their untimely death. Those reactions, wherever they happen, whether in your heart only or whether you bring it out in some other way, they are misplaced moralism and they are self-righteousness. If you feel this way, you're withholding, you're rejoicing, or you're sympathy because you're passing judgment on them. And even if your judgments are accurate based on Scripture, don't forget, these people don't know Scripture because they don't know Christ. And your purpose in being in that place for them is so that you can have a sincere relationship with them in that moment so that through that relationship, you might introduce them to Christ. But if you're too busy judging them for not knowing Christ then how will we ever get close enough to introduce them to Christ? And what do you expect of this anyway? I mean, when you really think about these kinds of moments, are you saying, are we saying that these people should receive our testimony of Christ only after they've adopted a Christian lifestyle? I mean, that's putting lipstick on a pig, right? That's, how, that's putting the cart before the horse. Is that how you receive Christ, by the way? Paul says, set aside your prejudices against unbelievers and live among them in a way that shows a true appreciation for their life circumstances, because that's exactly what Jesus did. He attended the house parties of tax collectors, and he associated with prostitutes. Now, he did so without joining into their sin, but he lived that way so that he might reach the lost with the love of God and, in the end, bring them righteousness. As Jesus said, he didn't come to call the righteous, he came to call the sinner. So you have to be careful about... This haughty, holier-than-thou attitude that can creep in without even necessarily realizing it. And if you find yourself unwilling to associate with those for whom you're here to witness, then you've taken yourself out of the game. You're taking yourself out of the mission of the church. It's how you end up with this phrase we sometimes use in the church, holy huddles, where you end up with communities of believers who only know other believers. They have school together, they have church together, they have dinner together, they have social time together. They never have much contact with unbelievers. They have workplaces and they have you know, schools and the like. But even in those circles, they happen to find their way to the other believers amongst them and they hang out with those people. That's fine to have friends in the church. We all want that. But not if it comes at the exclusion of our mission, right? Sometimes you've got to get outside that circle and actually interact with the world. Notice in verse 16, as I mentioned earlier, Paul asks that we be of the same mind toward one another in the body. Now, I think Paul put this command concerning how we work in the body. I think he put that command here in the midst of his teaching on how we deal with unbelievers. Because, if you think about it, there is a natural connection behind how we live in these two worlds. That is to say, a Christian who judges the sin of unbelievers and practices haughtiness toward them is likely, in my experience, to display that same attitude toward believers eventually. It's a small step from judging the unbeliever for their sin to judging the believer who you believe isn't living to your standard either. And Paul gives us the antidote to thinking that way in both cases in the second half of verse 16. He says, first, you need to associate with the lowly. You need to get dirty. You need to get down with the people you're busy judging. 
Spend time with the very people that you're looking down your nose at and get to know them. And what's going to happen is the more you know them, the more you're going to find that those so-called lowly are a lot like you. Or at least a lot like you were before you knew Christ. Nothing does away with haughtiness faster than learning you have something in common with the person you previously despised. Suddenly they're not so different anymore and you have a hard time holding them separate. In time, you just develop a compassionate attitude toward them. So, number one, spend time with lowly. And then the corollary to that is, Paul says, don't think too wisely of yourself. Don't think yourself to be too wise in your own estimation. When you judge another person, and this is a basic principle, of, I think, of, of sociology or psychology. When you start to judge another person, you inevitably place yourself above them in your own mind. Because you can't do it otherwise. You cannot judge someone without assuming a position of superiority over them. You have to find some way to see yourself as better, nicer, stronger, more holy, more wise than they are. There's some value that you're placing as the fulcrum in this relationship discussion, and you're on the upside of it, and they're on the downside of it. There's no other way for you to mentally process judgmental attitudes except from an above-looking-down position. You're going to find some way to get there. And from that position of superiority, you pass judgment on their inferiority. So you have to guard against this. I mean, it's not necessarily wrong. There are times when we can certainly make rational judgments about somebody having some superiority, whether that's in sports or in knowledge or whatever. But when you use that as the basis of your relationship, especially if it's an unbeliever, you're completely forfeiting the opportunity to be a witness. Paul says, here's how you guard against that haughtiness. Practice humility. And you have to practice it. You have to consciously work to not place yourself in a position of superiority over anyone else. Being wise in your own estimation is not being wise at all. It is only assuming you're wiser when in reality you're the fool. That is a practice of effort in your mind, even as you're spending time with those you think are less than you. And what you'll find is the combination of the two will bring you down. The best way to avoid thinking too well of yourself, in my experience, is to keep a healthy memory of your own weaknesses. No one knows your failings as well as you do. Bring that back to mind anytime you're tempted to look down on the unbelieving world or on a brother or a sister, remembering, of course, that Christ forgave you for all of those failings, and then consider that he's willing to forgive them too. So not having an attitude of haughtiness is an important element. The next element in verse 17 is, Paul says, don't pay back evil for evil. This instruction runs hand-in-hand with his earlier comment to bless and not curse those who persecute you. Remember the one we started with? But there is a difference. The difference here is that you don't take revenge for acts that have already been done against you. In the earlier instructions, Paul asked us not to take offense when others attack us for our faith in the moment. Here he's asking us not to be offensive to others by forgetting our faith and acting like them in retribution. In the first case, it was our love for the unbeliever that caused the conflict. We loved them. We wanted to love them with the message of the truth. We brought them the message of the truth out of love, and they were offended by it. So it was our love for them that caused the conflict. In this case, paying back evil for evil, in this case, it's your lack of love for the unbeliever that could lead to this conflict. Remember my example of the neighbor who wanted your nativity scene taken down? What if instead of asking you to take it down, what if he had just destroyed your decorations with a bat? Gone crazy on your front lawn. Now at that point, you might be tempted to repay evil for evil with uh, a bat and some of his property, right? 
And we all would have at least think about it for a minute or two, right? Or maybe in the more contemporary sense, we'd just take pictures of everything he did and post it on Facebook with some nasty comments about the man. And let social media do the rest of the work for us, right? No, Paul says you cannot act this way toward unbelievers and still expect to be in a position to win them for Christ. You're making a choice. You need to think strategically about that moment. You need to act charitably. Now, that does not mean you have to embrace the role of a victim, not under every circumstance, because I want you to notice how Paul caveats this at the end of verse 17. He says, we should do what's right in the sight of all men. So in other words, we should act in appropriate ways according to customs and expectations that are in the culture that we live in. Doing what's right in the sight of all men simply means living with a proper consideration for others, being a good friend, being a good neighbor, being a good representative of whatever group you're a part of. And in some cases, that will mean taking an appropriate action to defend yourself because that's what's right in the sight of all men. So in the case of that rampaging neighbor with the bat, you could choose to call the police. Uh, You could prosecute his behavior in court. Perhaps the situation has escalated to the point where police action is the right thing to do in the sight of all men. You're not required to press charges, though. But neither would you be wrong for doing so. Not necessarily. What is the key, then, in these difficult decisions? The key is maintaining an understanding that you are always an ambassador for Christ. So, make sure that you're being a good neighbor without giving cause for offense. And that standard means sometimes you're going to overlook the evil of the guy with the bat rather than taking offense. And there are going to be other times when doing that means you're going to earn the appreciation of all the other neighbors when you have the courage to put the bad neighbor in jail that everyone's been wishing somebody would do something about. I mean, it just depends on your situation, right? depends on where you think you see the best opportunity to represent Christ in the moment. And in both cases, you're not making any decisions based on personal interest. It's not about the nativity scene. It's not about the bad. It's not about the conflict. It's about, God, how would you choose that I would use this particular situation to maximize the opportunity for the gospel? Is it for the sake of this one individual or maybe for others that are watching me in this moment? What's, what's the right audience for me right now? Every one of those examples and anyone you gave me, it's a judgment call at the end of the day. I can't give you a hard and fast rule about how you respond to every one of these. Paul's given us the guidelines. They're enough. Just consider every situation you would face in light of eternity and consider its potential to win somebody for Christ. Paul says, do what's right in the sight of all men. Now, there's a caveat I want to introduce here that I want to hope nobody has made the mistake of assuming. That is, you can't say that doing what's right in the sight of all men becomes excuse for participating in their sin. And it can become that if you're not careful. Because the world will say many things are right, and yet we know they're not right, actually. So you can't use Paul's instructions here as an excuse for following after the world's desires and, and say it's in the spirit of maintaining relationships with them. You know, Well, the guys I'm witnessing to, they wanted to go into the topless bar. I didn't want to not be a good friend. I'm just doing what they thought was right. How do I know where that line is? Well, it's actually very easy because Paul's bullseye gives you the rule for knowing when to follow the world and when not to follow the world because the inner rings of the bullseye always take priority over the outer rings. So when doing what is right in the sight of all men, third ring, comes into conflict with a pursuit of personal holiness, bullseye, or your relationships in the church, the next ring after the bullseye, those two rings take precedence. So if your unbelieving friends ask you to do something that might stumble you or cause you to stumble a Christian brother, by example, then you have to decline. You don't have a choice. The bullseye overrides that. 
Paul will get more into that issue later in other chapters. So I'm just going to move on. Paul sums up the balancing of these priorities between the world and our witness, the tension between trying to remain in the world and useful without compromise in our witness. That tension he, he summarizes in verse 18. He says, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. So being at peace with all people is a goal. It's a goal because it furthers the mission of the church. That you might become like all men, so you might win a few, as Paul says, right? Obviously, you're not going to be able to witness to too many people in this world if you're embroiled in conflicts with the world every time you turn around. That's not a healthy state from which to do any witnessing. But at the same time, you can't be an effective witness if you don't stand for something that is different than what the world stands for, right? If you become so much like the world that you don't have a different message than the world, that also takes away the purpose of these relationships. So preserving your witness for Christ is a necessity, And being at peace with all men is a goal, and sometimes one leads to an unavoidable conflict with the other. And those conflicts are outside your control. You may face times when you're expected to do something or say something from an unbeliever's requirement or desire, and you can't do or say what they want because it would violate your conscience. Or your friendship with an unbeliever causes you to violate something commanded to you by Christ in the Word of God. You've got to draw those lines. And in those situations, you don't have a choice on how to proceed, though you do have a choice in how you present your conviction to the other person, trying to rescue the relationship, trying to minimize the conflict as much as you can. That's it, being at peace with all men as much as you can. But you're bound by Scripture and by your conscience to do what's right, holding to your witness, and as a result, perhaps sparking conflict once in a while. Friendships may suffer when you do this. Family relationships certainly can They can become distant or strained. Even your work relationships may be put at risk. You may have to say no to the boss for something that you can't in good conscience do. And if that means you lose your job, so be it. So far as it depends on you, be at peace. But if they don't want it to stay peaceful, then you have no choice at that point. A lot of times, in my experience, these kinds of conflicts arise because the unbeliever sees you holding to your belief and feels inherently judged by it convicted over it, though you may not necessarily have pointed out the difference or said anything about it or even tried to to mitigate it to some extent. Nonetheless, they feel it, and they feel like you're putting them on the spot because you won't join in, and they react in anger and resentment. I remember this at at multiple times in my professional life, running into circumstances like Halloween parties at at work, or even I remember one time I was just sitting in the office of a a high-ranking executive at, at the company I worked at, and the conversation of Halloween stuff came up and he sort of singled me out in the room among my peers as another member of management for someone who, oh, you wouldn't be into this, would you, Steve? And But not in a complimentary sense, if you know. The use of foul language in the office, you know, it used to be rare, now it's it's everywhere. People just use it like it's nothing anymore. And if you happen to have a conviction about not doing that, you'll stand out very plainly and most people will feel like you're being holier than thou or they'll turn it as a negative because that's how they can feel it in their heart. Those are situations Paul's talking about when he says, so far as it depends on you, because it doesn't always depend on you. It's not always in your control. And sometimes the world will use the potential of conflict as a fulcrum, as a weapon against you in the hope of getting you to go against your conscience. And if you value peace more than you value your conscience, you will soon become an ineffective witness because the enemy will figure that out. And he will take advantage of your weakness. It's up to the other party to decide if there's going to be conflict. And if the other party decides that they're going to make conflict out of your convictions, where do you go? 
Rule number one, bless those who curse you. An example of our day might be the dilemma of a Christian receiving an invitation to attend a family member's homosexual wedding. Now normally, according to what Paul says, rejoice with them who are rejoicing and associate with the lowly and respect what is right in the sight of all men. And as far as it depends on you, don't incite conflict in this situation, right? All of those, those statements from Paul would seem to indicate we should attend that wedding. And then nevertheless, you consider your witness and you consider your conscience. And in doing so, maybe you conclude that you just can't bring yourself to attend that event. What do you do? You see how your inner ring overrides your outer ring in that situation. But you still have other decisions to make. Maybe you go to the reception. Uh, Maybe instead of attending the wedding at all, you simply invite the new couple over to your house for a dinner after it's over. Or, depending on what your conscience would allow, you seek for some kind of working relationship with this couple. Because, friends, you cannot say, because these are two men or two women living in sexual sin, they're outside the bounds of the gospel. (laughs) Yet, ye who have no sin cast the first stone. So you have to find the grounds on which you're a witness because there is a definitive you can't deny. God wants to save people. He's not saving only the good people. So those two people are just as likely to be a candidate for salvation as any other two people you could find. So that means you cannot say because of their sin they cannot be associated with. Remember Paul says in 1 Corinthians to the church there who had taken his teaching and and thought that's what he meant. They had said, we're going to stop associating with immoral people. Paul says, when I told you not to associate with immoral people, I did not mean immoral people of the world, for if, if you were to do that, you'd have to go out of the world. He said, I meant not to associate with any immoral so-called brother. So if you want to draw a line on who you don't associate with, stay away from immoral Christians. And there's plenty of those. This is a strategic way of thinking, right? Strategy, in this case, means looking at the situation and trying to find a way to reach them, not looking for an excuse not to. And in the case of these sort of hard social issues of our day, things that have become particularly of note in our culture, it's at the top of the news, it's in the churches everywhere we go, these are the issues that the enemy is using to try to create that gulf so that the believer has no interest in these communities anymore. Islam is another example of that. Things that we find abhorrent because of the way we feel they treat us, and it's going back to cursing those who curse you and repaying evil with evil. The attitude we have needs to place the needs of the unbeliever and his or her potential salvation above any personal concerns of comfort or familiarity or desire, and to do it without compromising our holiness or our witness. There's a lot of ways you can associate with people who are engaged in homosexuality without participating in homosexuality. And as long as you don't, you're fine. Paul's next to last command is, never take your own revenge. And then he says, don't take your own revenge so that you can leave room for the wrath of God. Now this is a complex consideration, but it's a powerful way to understand how your service to Christ can be in the cause of salvation. First, let's understand the situation that Paul's addressing. He's talking about a believer who suffers a loss at the hands of an unbeliever We're talking about an unbeliever who's not responding to the gospel, at least not to this point. So you've reached that point where your attempts at friendship or witnessing have gone nowhere, and it's only resulted now in that person taking something out on you. And now you're at the stage where you yourself might feel that temptation to act in revenge against them, essentially writing them off, calling them a lost cause, 
and taking matters into your own hands. I'm sure many of us have been in this kind of a situation to some degree. Someone's harmed us, perhaps as a result of our Christianity, maybe not getting a promotion we should have got, maybe a relationship that went badly, maybe a neighborhood situation that didn't go as we expected, kids being mistreated, something that made us feel very unhappy and strong defensive mechanisms came up and we felt like we needed to take some action. And we became preoccupied with the thought of retribution. Maybe we took retribution. Uh, It can happen school, work, family. Families are often a place where this starts to happen. Paul says, when you face these situations, do not succumb to the desire to take that revenge. Because if we do, we don't leave room for God's vengeance. We don't know his plan for this person's personal life. Perhaps he plans to save this person in a future day. And when that day comes, they will receive forgiveness for all the wrongs that they did against you. And if God is willing to forgive them, How can you take revenge against them as if you presume to know the Lord's will for them? How are you going to feel in eternity, by the way, if you act against them while they were unbelieving and then later you see that God brought them to faith and he forgave them for all of that, giving them the same mercy he gave you, and then you have to walk up to him in the kingdom and say, oops, sorry about that, didn't see this coming. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, think about it. You're going to have a thousand years to hide from that person, you know? Paul says you've got to leave room... For God to act one way or another. And should God decide to leave them in their sin, God will take into account their sin against you, against believers, when he passes judgment. And when they receive their ultimate judgment, it will justly reflect their sin and it will be a punishment commensurate with their offenses against you. And Paul says that when you do kind things for those who are holding things against you, doing things to harm you, when you do the nice thing in response, he says it's like heaving coals on their head. He's quoting out of an Old Testament picture that is a symbol of judgment. Putting coals on someone's head is a symbol of judgment. So he's saying you're piling up more judgment on them by doing nice things to them, even as they do mean things to you. Now, at that point you hear this and you you think, well, Paul doesn't sound very charitable at this point, does he? It's almost like he's encouraging us to wish for the unbeliever to get more bad things, right? To, to sort of want for something bad to happen to these people. It seems counter to the whole topic of where we've been going in this passage, right? Strategically trying to rescue the unbeliever from their own deception. Well, if you think Paul's saying it that way, he's not. So let's, let's hear him properly. He's not necessarily asking you to have a desire to see an unbeliever suffer at God's hand. Rather, Paul's just acknowledging your natural desire for revenge, your natural inclination to feel that way, and he's trying to ensure that you will reflect upon your actions before you take them, considering whatever it is you want. Because the Christian who can't find it in their heart to forgive a person and is determined to take revenge, Paul's saying to that person, think again for a minute, because if it's revenge you want, i got a better plan than the one you're going to go after. Let God do it. He says that if the revenge is all you can see for that person, then the best course you can take is to just let God punish them for you. Because refraining from taking your own revenge will ensure that they get an even worse punishment than you could possibly give. Now, Paul's not endorsing that attitude. You should not have an attitude of that sort. You should bless those who curse you. But Paul is saying, if you can't get past that and you're ready to take measures up in your own hands, think again, because there's still a worse way to hurt them if that's your goal. Leave it to God. Now, if you take justice into your own hands, Paul says, you're going to sin, first of all. But secondly, you limit God's justice. You limit God's justice. In a sense, 
their judgment in hell will be lessened in some way because you took matters into your own hands. That's the implication of what he's saying. Luke 16 teaches that there is a reciprocity in judgment, that there's a reciprocal relationship between what you receive here and what you receive in eternity. The more a believer suffers for Christ here, the greater our reward is in heaven. Jesus sums up this way in Matthew five eleven: Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Then he says, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So your reward increases as you willingly accept persecution for the sake of your faith. So being willing to forego taking revenge holds the promise of greater benefits for you in the future. So this is all speaking strictly from a very um, selfish, self-centered point of view. Paul's sort of embracing that view for the moment to make the argument that even if you're willing to be self-centered and selfish about this, even if you're willing to harbor hatred in your heart for an unbeliever rather than having that charitable view, nevertheless, you can still get what you want by just not doing anything. You're still better off doing nothing. Secondly, he says, there's, the scriptures give us some suggestion that the more sin that an unbeliever commits now, the more suffering they experience in eternity. Peter suggests that the punishment for those who sin greatly here will be proportionally greater in the next realm. Second Peter 2.20, he says, speaking of uh, false teachers, if after the, they have escaped the defilements of this world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. It would have been better for them to not have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to have turned away from the holy commandment and handed on to them. He says later, it would be better if they had never been born. While we don't fully understand this economy, and I'm not trying to say I do, we just know one thing for certain. God is perfectly just in all his judgments. Therefore, we know he will consider all of these puts and takes and arrive at the right course of judgment for every believer and unbeliever, But if you and I step in and enforce our own version of justice, we sin by interfering with God's plan, number one, his plan of justice. Number two, the person we're against will see even greater judgment should we have left them in God's hands. We're actually diminishing their potential for judgment. And then the real point in this, if God should decide to forgive that person, which is truly what our hope should be, right? You will be glad you didn't act against them because they're now a brother or sister in Christ. If you have the right charitable attitude, you won't do anything because you're hoping for God to save them and you don't want to ruin that possibility. If you have the wrong attitude and can't get over it, you should still do nothing because in a kind of perverse logic, you're still helping yourself in the long run by leaving room for God. It's a win-win no matter what way you view them and no matter what course God takes for them. Finally, Paul sums up the chapter. He says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And this has a specific meaning, but it can also be a summary for the whole thing he's been talking about. But in the specific sense, he's saying, as you engage in the unbelieving world, and you go out there hoping to win some, and you're doing all these things we've just described in one fashion or another, be careful. Be careful that they don't pull you down. I have a saying I like to use about this point, that if you hang around unbelievers without being strategic about it, just because you like them, and you assume that your goodness will rub off on them. You don't understand the process. You will not bring them up. They will bring you down. Only if you are operating in a strategic way, and I use that term to simply 
uh, reflect on all these things we've been talking about with a thoughtfulness about why you're doing what you're doing, how you're doing what you're doing, watching every step and every word, thinking the whole way through, how am I working to win this person for Christ? If that's not your attitude, you're just hanging out with the buddies, having a few beers. You can do that once in a while, but if you're not, if you're not discerning about that, next thing you know, you'll be doing all the other things they're doing too. And calling it witnessing. And I, I laugh at that because it's, I've heard this. I've heard people say, I'm witnessing to them. Like, stop giving them that witness. You're not helping. You, know, you need to be careful about getting pulled down. You'd be better to stay away from this world if you're not spiritually strong enough to navigate its difficulties than you are to try to be a part of it and get corrupted. Here again, this statement takes us back to the bullseye. Think about the bullseye now from the standpoint of spiritual maturity. You can only operate effectively in this third ring as an ambassador for Christ among the unbelieving if you have the capacity to exercise reasonable self-control over the flesh. If you have already practiced to some degree walking in holiness according to your convictions under the guidance of the Spirit by what you've heard in the Word of God. And you have that internal compass and that sense of, of knowing what's right from wrong and of a strength to say no to yourself when the wrong things attract you. If you're not in place to do that, you have no business being an ambassador. You're in Christianity 101. Go back into the classroom. Do not go out into the world. If you are not practiced in that second ring of showing love with humility among unbelievers who are likely to be on your side and not have your worst interests in mind and not be corrupting, hopefully, and if you're able to live with eyes for eternity among believers, cheating them charitably when they do things that you don't like and being kind to them when they're not kind to you, I mean, that's, a, that's child's play compared to the way the unbelieving world works. And if you can't handle that in the church, you have no business trying to handle it in the world. Stay in church on Sundays. Don't go outside the building. (laughs) Obviously, I'm exaggerating, but if you're weak in those two inner rings, you're going to get eaten alive by your relationships with the unbelieving world. You may enter into those relationships hoping to win some, but my experience has been most Christians live in that third ring with no concept of a mission, much less how to be strategic, because they've never learned any of the inner rings material. They are literally in the world and of the world. Not in true sense, obviously not in a spiritual sense, but in a fleshly sense. They're carnal. And if you do that, you'll find yourself sharing all their bad habits, all their sinful attitudes. Paul says, above all else, we are not out in the world to be overcome by it, but to overcome it by the good of Christ and his word. So we can't let the enemy get the upper hand in our life. You can't be overcome by evil. Let's take one last look at our chart and we'll end here. The theme then for this third section, the chart I just handed out I'm speaking of, Our theme in this last section, this third ring, is living strategically and selflessly as Christ's ambassador. This is actually hard work. You know, it takes a lot of mental energy. When you go into a place that you know is largely dominated by unbelievers, I'm talking about a place where they're going to know you and interact with you, not just walking through the grocery store. That's, that's, That's an example of it, but it's a minimal one, not likely to have a lot of meaningful relationships in the, you know, 40 minutes you're going to be there. I'm thinking more of, you know, the, the bowling league you're in the workplace you work in, the school you're in, the, the office you sit in every day, where you have a meaningful opportunity to interact with unbelievers on a regular basis. You ought to be prayerfully, strategically asking God, what's my plan today? Who am I influencing today? I have this meeting with these people today, and I know the meeting's about this and that business thing, but let's talk about the spiritual opportunities for a minute. Lord, what do you have for me in that room spiritually? When they attack me over my faith and my unwillingness to celebrate Halloween, how am I going to respond to that in a charitable way? How do I use that opportunity? You know, you don't always get it right when you think about it in advance, but at least you're thinking about it. At least you're available to Christ. 
And look at the detail underneath as we just summarized. Turning the other cheek, building relationships, associating with them, keeping your eye on your own faults so that you don't become haughty and self-righteous among them. Hold yourself blameless among them. Win their respect in that sense. Seeking for peace, but not with compromise and not taking revenge. Don't become like them. Become a source for good for them. Easier said than done in all respects, but you don't start unless you know. With that, we'll go to prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for our time in this word, our reminders of how we should behave and think and act with the unbelieving world that we're here to influence for you. Father, we know all the salvation that will ever happen on this earth will happen as a result of your will and work through your spirit. You need no one, rely on no one, but yet, Father, in your grace, you allow us to be a participant with you. We ask, Father, that in all of these things we may practice, that you would give us the, bl- uh, the blessing and the encouragement of seeing these things come to the fruition of, of a new faith in the hearts of those we influence. Let us be encouraged to see that happen. Let us always be mindful of its potential. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.